real people, real conversations over coffee. This is Meet Me for Coffee. Today's show is brought to you by Coffee Cola. On a hot day like today, I look for other, other alternatives to coffee. Coffee Cola is a carbonated beverage infused with coffee. Whether you're on the go or with friends, it easily mixes with your favorite liquors, whiskey, bourbon, whatever you need. CoffeeColaCanada.com to get some for yourself. And I got Scott Page on the show today, and it's called Meet Me for Coffee. Are you ready to meet me for coffee, Scott? Buddy, I'm ready to meet you for coffee. And hey, I've never seen that stuff before. That looks great. I'm a coffee lover. I got to try that. You know what? Hopefully, hopefully, Benil is listening to this because I did some research on it. It's from Russia originally. Wow. And I am a coffee lover. And I have also do a bit of outdoor work sometimes. And on a hot day like today, you don't want to sweat, man. Like, you want something refreshing. And this is actually pretty good. It's infused uh, tonic water with the perfect amount of coffee tinge to it. So I like the, wow. the mocha taste and everything. So it's, it's amazing. Uh, it's really going to catch on. I really do believe so. So wow. yeah. So hopefully he can I send you a box idea. of that. Oh, please. Yeah. Cause I love the idea. I love carbonated drinks. I love coffee. That combination I've ever heard before. Awesome. I, I can't wait to check that out actually. Awesome. Yeah. CoffeeColaCanada.com for anyone else looking to get some. It's an awesome right. drink. Really refreshing. I enjoy it in the morning sometimes, you know, I'm a coffee guy. I'm a coffee 24-7 guy. And that's why we made this show because Meeting for Coffee is the best place and best time to get conversations and stories that we have never heard before out in the open. So, Scott, let's talk about your father, Bill Page. He played with the Lawrence Welk Band as part of his, it was was like a, a variety show, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, Lawrence Welk was one of the early television shows back in the day when there was only seven stations. You know, it was two, four, five, seven, eleven and thirteen. That was it. Uh, and uh, so it was one of the very early started out in black and white, then went to color uh, later on. It was our early time. Uh, my dad was in that band for 15 years. So I grew up on the Lawrence Welk show. I grew up around television and that's when those cameras were giant. You know, there were those big giant cameras they pushed around. Now it's all these little things that, you know, it's crazy, but yeah, it was a very interesting time. Um, my dad was, like I said, was with the band for 15 years. Um, before that, you know, he was with Judy Garland. He did, I mean, he played with a lot of the big bands through the years. And then he went to NBC staff orchestra and he was, he did uh, worked at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion here in Los Angeles doing the light opera season. He was a real seasoned musician that played, you know, 14 different instruments. So he was a woodwind player. He was called a doubler because he doubled on, you know, all the saxophones, flutes, clarinets, but also played oboe, English horn and bassoon. And uh, yeah, that was where I kind of got myself started in music. And at that time I was a kid, I was a trumpet player and I, you know, I played on the show and I, I can actually say one of my biggest claim to fames. And I bring, and that brought this up a few times. I'm the only guy on the planet that is played in Lawrence Welk and in Pink Floyd. So it's a very interesting combo. If people that knew Lawrence Welk's show, I'm sure your mom and some of those folks would know, that's a pretty big, seven billion people and it's just me. <laughs> You're the only guy I know who played in the Lawrence Welk band and Pink Floyd. So <laughs> it all works out. Uh, it's so funny. Let's talk about uh, beginning times for you. Right. Learning to play uh, your your. You're multi-talented. You play rhythm guitar. You played in uh, Pink Floyd rhythm guitar as well, right? Yeah, besides saxophone, yep. Yeah. yeah. Like, how, how do you – I've always wanted to play the saxophone. 
Was a saxophone your first instrument? No, no. I actually started out as a trumpet player and I played trumpet through school. I didn't really, wasn't really interested in being a musician. I did it mainly because my dad would always say, you know, it's good. Get, he wanted me to have music. And he said, you know, play, you can, you know, play some gigs on the weekend instead of working in a gas station and make some extra money. You could play. And it's, uh, you know, something just kind of good for the soul. Uh, it wasn't until I was in high school that um, I was a trumpet player. I wasn't really very good. And I played in all the bands in the marching band. You just always get teased being in the marching band with all my surfer buddies. But uh, I, um, I studied being a, a draft. I was studying to be an architect and I was a draftsman. And I was working for a company called Audiodyne Corporation right out of high school going into college. And then I ended up getting in a band with uh, Jeff Beccaro and David Page, who were the original founders of Toto back in the day. And we had a kid band called the Merciful Soul Band. And it was really like a blood, sweat and tears, Chicago style band and had three, uh, four horns. Like I said, I was the worst guy in the band. Uh, but I used to, we play those gigs and the band was so good with Jeff and them because they were great kid. I mean, his kids, they were monster. Jeff was killing it. Uh, we started winning all these battle of the bands. And then I started realizing I'd be going to work every day drinking nothing but coffee. That's where I trained myself on coffee, drinking coffee all day. And then when I played the gigs, I'd go to the gigs and the front row was filled with a lot of girls. So I said, you know what? I think this music business part is much more fun. So I decided at that moment to become a musician. I stopped my uh, learn, you know, learning uh, my drafting skills and doing all that. And I uh, moved uh, on to just becoming, a, you know, studying like crazy. Through that period of time, I was still playing trumpet for a while. And then I got into a band with a gentleman by the name of Stan Worth. And Stan was the, he, people know him. He was the guy that wrote George of the Jungle and Super Chicken. <laughs> those uh, those uh, theme songs, and he was an incredible musician. Uh, he brought me into his band. Uh, I was not really that good, but he he liked me, and he sort of made me a little protege to kind of study with him. And I basically carried all the equipment, had the truck, did all the work, and he let me play. And I got into it. And then I finally he said, "Dude, you got to take up the saxophone. Can you do that?" So I went and bought a saxophone, um, started practicing that, started playing it on the gig. Fell in love with the saxophone. Then just did you know twenty four seven playing saxophone for years. Right, and that was my whole start. The the rest is history. It, you know, history. I I, uh, I I consider it history. Anything that has to do with Super Tramp, Pink Floyd, um, you know, I see you jamming with uh, Stephen Perkins during this uh, this new project you have. Think, uh, think Floyd, one of my favorite drummers on the entire planet. Mine too. God, that guy is so smoking, man. It's about the feel. He has such an incredible feel. It just he brings so much excitement to the bandstands because when Stephen plays, it's it is so real. I mean, there's a difference. There's a lot of guys that have great chops and that can play, but Steven brings this lifts, just lifts the band up because there's just so much love in his playing and his time. And so it's, it's not so much that his time is like perfect, like a metronome, but he feels great. Right. And that's why he's so great on the real personality behind me. Yeah, I love playing with Steven. I, 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 uh, I told him that as well, that he's got some feel in his play, but I also look back in, on your discography and you played on the Strays record for them, right? Is that where you guys met, you and Steven? I played on the James Addiction record. Yes. Uh, that's, and I, I actually did not meet him there. I went in, I did that session with Perry Farrell and, uh, and uh, uh, Dave. Uh, and I put some horns on a, a tune there. I, actually, my, my business partner uh, 
was a gentleman by the name of Bob Ezrin, who was producing that Jane's Addiction album. He also produced the, you know, the Wall, the Pink Floyd records and stuff. And we became partners and we started a company together called Seventh Level, which we took public later. But anyway, Bob called me in to come put a solo on, uh, uh, not a solo, but put some horn parts on that, on that Jane's Addiction album. Yeah. Any, any new projects happening right now or in the works? I know everybody's stuck at home. Oh yeah. I mean, listen, I, personally, I'm an, I am been a serial entrepreneur. Like my dad, I learned from my father. We had donut businesses, boat businesses, lighting businesses, candy businesses. My dad was the, one of the inventors of the Wawa pedal, believe it or not. And that's famous recording studio, Sound City. I don't know if you know, there's a documentary on that, the day Roll bought the thing. That was my dad's studio. So grew up in all this stuff, entrepreneurship. And so I've always been an entrepreneur and I've, I'm actually on my fourth startup now, which has been, uh, took, was lucky to take one of them public, which was seventh level that I did with Bob Ezrin. Uh, and then I've done a series of other companies and my new one is called Think Experience. And it's an, it's an, um, an immersive entertainment company because the model has shifted so much right now that you can't sell music anymore. There's no, more, no way to sell music anymore as an artist. I mean, you can maybe get some streams, but it's very difficult to make any money in the streaming business unless you've got a label behind you, get you on those uh, playlists. Uh, you know, a million streams will get you roughly $5,000. Well, there's only 2 to 3% of the entire Spotify catalog that gets a million streams. So there's a lot, only the top tier really making money there. So I realized that and I thought, well, you know, as an entrepreneur, where where can you make money? It's really combining technology and what's going on in entertainment today. Uh, so I started Think, uh, and we're experimenting using technology because it's all about the experience. The two things you can spell, uh, sell as an artist today really is the experience and the, you know, the lifestyle, your lifestyle and, and sort of the relationship. So I've really been focused on taking, uh, you know, the sort of the things I've learned through business and taking this new business and looking for opportunities in the experience space. And we just uh, finished with Perkins and myself. Uh, we did 40 sold out shows at the uh, in a 360 degree immersive visual dome. And it is the trippiest experience you've ever seen. And think experience is a couple things. It's about think if making you think when you go in these and creating the experience and this first think experience was a think floyd experience so we were doing pink floyd with an all-star band with stephen perkins uh, uh uh tony franklin from the firm uh, norwood fisher from um uh fishbone kenny Olds from kid rocks band and roberta friedman who was on floyd with me and we've kind of been doing this crazy immersive show and we're starting to experiment with all kinds of technology so think is really um uh, since i come from i have a technology background because all the companies i've i've been doing have been technology companies over the past 15 17 18 oh 20 years 20 no 20, 20 something years have been tech companies. Geez, I can't even believe how much time's gone by. Um, so it's really about figuring out how technology plays into this. So we're we're basically working on the, exp uh, the the technology stack for an immersive live show, but that's also tied to the online audience management platform that ties into a subscription product business that we're building out. So we're we're really kind of. Uh, developing new ways to create experiences. And especially now, I, I have to say, I mean, this is crazy times and everybody's pummeled. And personally, you know, we lost everything this year. Uh, we had gigs, we were supposed to be playing Jazz Fest this year. We had tours lining up for Europe. We were working on this 1600 seat immersive dome theater we were gonna put up. All these things happened when this COVID thing hit and all this stuff, it just killed it, done, over. But you know what I have to say? 
those are all things in the future. I don't know what would have happened if I would have done them. I mean, I could have fell down and hit my head and been over. So I completely don't care about that. And personally, right now, I'm so excited about the opportunities that are coming up. I think this is going to be the heyday for uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, there are so many problems to solve, and especially in the music and entertainment space, there's incredible opportunities. So I'm thrilled. I'm working on new business models, revamping those uh, around our experience-based stuff with some new ideas about how to do live shows tied to streaming and a few other little special goodies that I'll be bringing out uh, pretty soon once we get into talking about all that stuff. I'll be the first one on a flight down to see this because I'm a big Pink Floyd fan. Uh, what other tributes are you guys planning on doing? Or is it just Pink Floyd for now? Uh, no, actually, our whole model, the business model is based around experiences because we can yeah. think everything from education. I can think education. I can think blockchain. I can think entertainment. But I, I really believe the concept of mashing known things that people know and putting your own spin on them. So we're not just taking these things and uh, doing them exactly like the records, like a tribute band. We're trying to say, how can we take these known things and mash them together? If you think about our company, Think Experience, it's really a combination of Cirque du Soleil meets TED Talks meets Burning Man. So it's really kind of creating a whole experience and we're doing that. And we're working on a variety of other options to mash together. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm kind of holding out on a couple of things. I don't really want to announce them just yet because uh, I'm very excited. But we're we're taking uh, we're taking great classics, mashing them with incredible storytelling, and tying that also with innovations of new electronica, and mashing it all together to create a new experience that's storytelling that also makes people think when they listen to it. So that's kind of the space we're going into. But we're working on a bunch of things in that space. First off, how'd you think of this idea? Where did it, where did it all start? Uh, you know, it really comes down to, I, you know, I, I, I can honestly say I feel like I'm very close to the market because I'm a technologist and I follow technology so closely because every 90 days it's changing. And, you know, I realized that, you know, a few years ago that, you know, it's really about entrepreneur. I mean, artists have to really start thinking like entrepreneurs. Right. You have to start thinking different. So I developed actually a program called SPACE, which stands for Story, Plan, Army, Conversion, Education. So the whole idea is it's a workflow. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a business process to teach artists how to think like entrepreneurs and build a business. And it's around lean startup principles and things that we use like in Silicon Valley, building businesses, the lean canvas, a one page business plan, and all those types of business tools on uh, how we do it. Because this is the greatest time in history for the independent artist. I have this thing that I'm talking to you right now is a worldwide broadcast network. I can not only, I can find audience because whoever owns the audience wins. That's just the game. The cool part is, is you don't need a lot of audience. Going back to the, uh, what Kevin Kelly from Wired Magazine had coined about 10, 12 years ago, 15 maybe now, was called the thousand true fans. True fan is somebody spend $100 a year. If I have a thousand of those fans, I've now it's my first $100,000 in revenue. So I teach everybody to go small, figure out how to get a thousand people in a repeatable process and then scale from there. So from that, my mind is always thinking about 
how, where are the opportunities? And thinking about this, and especially when you look at what's going on right now with this COVID, we know right out of the gate, we're not, people aren't going to be just showing up in groves and in clubs and stuff anymore. They have all this social distancing and new ways of things. But one of the key ingredients is we now have this live streaming. But what people forget is this live streaming is two-way. It's not just a one-way stream anymore. I can have a whole bunch of people on a big screen, which I'm doing right now. We're building our live show with us, all this secret things that we're kind of working on. But I got screens around the band and people are actually looking. We're watching them. They're watching us. And I can reach up and go, hey, Bob, what do you want to hear, buddy? And then that guy from over can actually have the conversation. So bringing two-way into it uh, and all these technologies. So the making me think about it was is, just the force, when you're forced into a situation where things can't be the way they are, you start to look for the opportunity. And I'm a firm believer inside of chaos is where all the opportunities come. So while everybody else is out all freaking out, what are we going to do? How am I going to do this? I'm just like, oh, this is awesome because while the confusion is there, I'm not trying to figure out how to do this. And I've been really focused in on the online space for a while. I had a company called Ignited Networks where we built mobile messaging networks, uh, media, multi those types of things. So I'm really combining all the things that we know are working right now. We know there's a whole bunch of data that shows that people are going to be cocooning more. It's really about building a hive now. The business models are around hives. I say if you want to survive, you have to build a hive because that's really bringing those super fans together and creating your business. One of the things I've also learned, I'm a big data guy, I follow data very closely, that we now know that roughly 60% of the revenue for artists and entertainers will come from 2 to 3% of your audience, the super fan base. That's where it's at. So my thinking with all this is like, how do I service the super fan? How do I build a relationship? And then how do I extend those experiences, even if I'm doing it small people live, certain people online, and then there's other things we can also do, like delivery service. I can now deliver an experience that can go along with my live experience, right? So that's the model I'm looking at because I can see people having parties at home where they feel like they're with trusted sources and they're able to actually begin to have fun with their friends. And if I can deliver an experience that's tied to my live thing, that people can come over, we can all interact. It really extends the live experience into a, a home experience that can be globally. I also believe that there's a massive opportunity in going lo hyper-local hyper-local around businesses that are in town where live events and things can actually happen, but I can have use the delivery services to deliver food, special drinks, sponsored boxes, things like that, so that I can say, I got a cool event coming up this, this tomorrow night at nine o'clock. You can order your box, bring it over, invite your fans over, and here you got this thing that's going to help make the experience even better. So those are the models that I'm working on right now with Think. That's incredible. You know what? It Kudos to you for thinking about the future of the music business, the future of the experience of the fan. Um, you know, obviously everyone in every entertainment industry wants to entertain their fans somehow or get them captivated, build a hive around their business. Even this is podcast, right? You start small, keep going and going and going. Same with a band. A lot of bands after this, I know especially mine because well, we're not really going anymore, but we probably freaking out because now we hit a dead stop. We can't play shows. We can't get spins. Where, where is this industry going 
besides the thinking experience, where do you see this in 10 years? Oh, well, you know, that's kind of hard to say. Again, I don't know if this all this social distancing is going to change. But what I do see is it's going to be based on experiences. We know from doing our dome shows, we were able to sell 40 shows out. I also know there's new technologies like one of the companies. We're we're working on AR and VR, right? Obviously, those technologies, I think VR has now had had a shot in the arm because we're forced people to stay home. I mean, just look at all these, this is talking about the Zoom calls and people are like hanging out with their friends on their FaceTime. What I think is interesting is so many people now are going, wow, the experience is pretty cool. I'm, I'm cooking or I'm washing, you know, watering the yard and I've got four of my pals on there and they're washing, doing their stuff. One guy's washing, the car. we're hanging out in this virtual space. Well, now with VR, we're seeing a whole push into that direction where now you can actually experience it in a world, talk to people, things are starting to open up. So I see a massive shift in that home experience. I think we're going to cocoon. I think we're going to see more of that going on. This COVID thing that's happened and what's gone on is completely, uh, from my point of view, has said the Jetsons go. This has completely changed all the user behavior. You're seeing companies like Twitter and Facebook saying, don't come back into the office, work from home, because we now have the ability to connect because the three main drivers that have happened to change everything is bandwidth, storage, and horsepower. The cell phone that I'm on right now, this iPhone is like, forget about it. When I was doing my first technology, I was, I was really early on in the multimedia day. My, one of my favorite things that I was part of, and my, my favorite claim to fame is I directed and produced the world's first interactive con, uh, cartoon with another fellow and a company. We basically launched the whole business around that. And, um, it's like all this new technology is now moving into the home. It's in the palm of our hand. I can broadcast anywhere. I can build audience. I don't need anybody else anymore. I don't need a label. I don't need anybody. All I have to do is create value for customers. And if you're an artist out there, the key is, is if you can't sell music, what can you sell? You have to think that through. What experience, what products, what things can you bring to the party? We were experimenting with all these new technologies from, we had interactive clothing that had chips built into them. So you can walk up with yourself and boom, create an experience. And that, that experience changes all the time. So the next day I can pick up my clothes and tap my phone and new stuff can happen, right? So there's all kinds of new ways. I, there's a company, a venture capitalist friend of mine that after he came to see our Dome show, he said, Dude, you can't believe it. We just put $10 million into a company that when you put their shoes, when you put them on, they turn you into a speaker. And he says, once you listen to music like this, you will never listen to music again. Now, I haven't heard of yet, but it's really about bringing all these new tech experiences and things together. So I'm, I'm out looking and working with major manufacturers of new stuff to mash these experiences and things together. And, you know, AR, VR, and all artists, you have to look at what's going on in technology. You have to become educated uh, and get up every day and uh, go to work. And part of going to work is following thought leaders, studying, learning how to use social media for business, not just as this, how to use Twitter for business, how to use Facebook, how to, how to, how to get convert on Facebook ads. They got to learn growth hacking. All these things are important. They don't necessarily have to do it all, but what they have to do is they have to know what it is and who to call. That's the point. So I try to teach artists, you got to get educated. If you're serious about building a business, this is the greatest time because again, 
1,000 true fans, somebody will spend $100 on whatever you sell over a year. That's your first hundred grand in revenue. Go small, figure that out, build a repeatable process, then scale it. It's very simple. It's work. But I, I really suggest people going local, especially a local artist, because there I can walk into a store. I can go cut a deal with the, the restaurants trying to figure out how they can make any money. Hey, well, let's move your restaurant out in the parking lot. We'll put a band outside and we'll stream that. And then all the people at home, we can deliver stuff to them. You know, we can ship them food and all kinds of things. So there's just new ways to partner up with other entrepreneurs. I always believe in partnering and I think that's a really important thing. I think you pretty much stretched it out to a point where people will actually understand it the first time. Uh, that was really well said. I want to get back to your career. 1983. Okay, yeah. Super Tramp. Unbelievable. Famous last words tour. Must have been yep. an amazing tour, although Roger Hodgson was leaving the band at that point. Yep. yep. 1984, I saw that you were part of his solo record, Indian yep. Storm, hooked on a problem. How was it recording with Roger? Oh, Roger's, first of all, Roger's a great guy, really nice, very, you know, he's a very kind of, I would say, very spiritual guy. You know, he's, you know, he loves nature. He's very easy to get along with. And, you know, going with Roger was great. I mean, it was so simple in the studio. You know, he, he's, he actually directed very well and gave me good input. And, you know, I put parts on his record. Uh, you know, a super tramp for me as, was a great family. That tour, that 83 tour was fantastic. It was with all the band. And that was uh, probably the, my I guess the 83 or 80, well, I guess it was 83 tour. Yeah. Was it 80, 83, eight? Yeah. I can't remember. Anyway, cause we did, I did three albums with them and I did multiple tours. Uh, that was an incredible tour. Cause that was my really, I think the well, first time of really major stadium style tours. Cause super tramp in the United States is big, but in Europe, they're huge. Massive. Like it, like stadium planes. We did 80,000 outdoor see people out at special this place park to so uh but that was such a family organization john helliwell the saxophone that player in that band is truly one of my biggest mentors uh i loved him to death he he taught me so much about life because this guy loves things i mean but he doesn't love you know he always had beautiful italian clothes and you know, he had beautiful sports cars, but he didn't have them because he was trying to, wow, this is cool to have. He had them because he loved them so much. And I used to see him over there. When he'd take a bite of food, you could see his eyes go blank. He was tasting every bite of food. He was a collector of, of uh, I used to love this, collector of, uh, 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 what do you call those, uh, the little knives. What is it, the famous knife? Uh, Swiss Army knife? Swiss Army knives, and he collected them from all over the world because they're all different colors and all this stuff. And I'd look over, he'd buy, he just went and found a new one. And I'd see him over in the corner, and he'd be there, like, looking at this thing, like, for 10 minutes, just savoring everything. So he was the one that started making me realize in order to do that, you have to be present. You can't have your mind running around in a million places, tasting the food where you taste it. So he gave me insights that really was very important. Not only a monster player and one of the sweetest people on the planet, but just an incredible. He, he taught me the importance of, of really caring about things at a level that I've never seen anybody in my life presented to me. Amazing, amazing guy. I love that tour. That was so much fun. And you were also busy with Toto at that time too, in 1985, 
you mm-hmm. toured with them in promotion of the Isolation album, which you've already established you had a friendship with some of the dudes in Toto before. So how'd, the, how'd that all okay. happen? You were such a busy guy. So here's the thing. Why that gig to me was one of the most, was truly one of the most important jobs, I, gigs I've ever had. When we were playing in the kid band and we were doing our Merciful Soul thing, Jeff be started becoming an incredible drummer. He started doing this Shunny and Cher show at 16 years old. And then those guys all went off and they did the Boz Skaggs albums and they did all this stuff. And in the back of my, I wasn't very good. I would, cause I really didn't get seriously playing until I got into college. So these guys were already really rocking. And so always in the back of my mind, I was always, that was a driving force for me because I saw them explode in the business. So when I was practicing like crazy, and then when I got the call to come in and play with the band, that was one of the most exciting moments and probably one of the most frightening moments of my life. I remember when they called me for this, I would shed like 10 hours a day on the music, man. I was so scared to go in there and play because the, the stories are, you know, Jeff doesn't, what he, he wouldn't put up with anything, right? If it wasn't happening, man, he let everybody know, right? He was, a, he was, he wouldn't put up with any crap. So I was so scared going into that first day. I didn't sleep all night because I thought, what if I go in there and I fall down? Right. I fall down in front of my friends after finally calling me to do this because I did Super Tramp and, you know, I played with Fleetwood's band. There was a variety of things I'd done. So I kind of moved my stature up and I thought, oh, my God, I get to go play. Just I'm getting in the game. I'm really getting in the game now because they at that time, you know, Toto was the they were the musicians, musicians, right? They were, they were doing all the records. They were on everybody's records and, and they had, you know, grant, you know, six Grammys for that one record. So they were serious at that time. So to get that call and I'll never forget, I went in that day. I was so scared to death. And before we did anything, the first thing that Jeff did is he handed me the cowbell and they counted off a tune and wanted me to play cowbell. Now time is, you know, the groove, according to Jeff, the groove is a very delicate thing. It's not just hitting the thing, right? I mean, there's a place where you set that tempo. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lifetime to just go. <laughs> I mean, to really lock in where it feels and you're kind of right in the groove and you can get it to happen. So uh, luckily, I was a fanatic with, drum, uh, uh, with um, uh, uh, metronomes. I ate, drink, sleep lived with a metronome because it was so important to me to get learn good time because time is everything it helps you hit a better golf ball hit a tennis ball uh make love to your wife <laughs> whatever i mean time is a very important thing right it's so important and so i went into that session they hand me the cowbell and i'm sweating right and they count off the tomb and i'm playing the cowbell and afterwards jeff went Ah, he came over and put his arm around me. And that was sort of the first kind of inkling of getting in. And that was the place I got in. And people always ask me, they say, what was the best thing about playing with Toto? I said, dude, I got to play cowbell with Jeff Beccaro on four songs. It wasn't the solos I had or the parts I played. It was picking up that cowbell because I was such a student of the groove. He was a monstrous groove, so it was such an honor to be somebody that understood the beat like he did, right? And I remember he was, he'd be, I'd be here, and my, my riser was up here, and he was just a little bit below me right over here, and we'd go into those tunes, and I'd stare at him, look in his eyes, and we'd just lock in like crazy on that cowbell. And honest to God, it's when that groove gets to that point, when you're playing with things, it's, 
it's, it's, it's, it's better than sex. It's like crazy. It's like you go to a different place. You go to a no mind space. You're just like in there and that it just dances. It's an amazing thing. So for me, Toto, the best thing was getting to play four <laughs> cowbell on four songs with Jeff Picardo. <laughs> Love that guy. I miss him so much. I mean, he was my mentor. You know, we, we, it was great. We had two buses in the band. And um, uh, the two, but there was the A bus and the B bus. And Jeff, myself, Lenny Castro, the percussion, and, and Lenny's wife, who was one of the singers, Paulette, we were in the B bus. And we, uh, it was like going to school every day to talk to Jeff because by that time, he had already played on just monsters amounts of records and dates and, you know, legendary drummer at that time. So that, that was an incredible, incredible time for me. Well, even Lenny Castro to be on the same bus as that guy, like, unreal. Well, Lenny's monstrous. I mean, he's, he had talked about it, and that's what was so beautiful is with, imagine being in the rhythm, rhythm section with Lenny, Jeff Beccaro, and his brother Mike playing bass. I mean, this thing was like that, that rhythm section, and then Lukather, of course. I mean, that rhythm section is so strong and grooves so hard. It was like, it was heaven every night. I mean, I enjoyed just, I, I was incredible incredible grooves in that band incredible incredible players there was a band that the the children of jeff picaro and lukather started with a drummer from one direction i yep. had him on my show uh earlier last year trevor trevor called, yeah all those guys yeah called trevor. zfg awesome yep. band and you know what they got feel where it goes back they to that feel. feel well yeah you know i mean listen i'm so proud of trev because he was a little guy when i was playing he was born right at that period of time, right? And so it's so it's so rewarding to see him growing up in his dad's footsteps, and he's playing great. And you can definitely see the influence pop handed him the influence right now. But it's a great band. More important, he's a wonderful kid. Right now, he's becoming a man. For me, he's a kid. He's just a beautiful person. And like Lukather, I love Lukather. He's he's a prankster, but he's one of the biggest hearted people I've known. And I truly love that guy a lot. All those guys, the Picaros, the Picaro family to me growing up and Joe and them was, you know, they were such inspirations. And then David Page, whose father, Marty Page, was, you know, one of the big composers, television, film composers, amazing guy. And so being around that music and my dad with all that, those were such incredible times. Emil Richards was a big part of that. You being probably knowing about percussionists and stuff. That was, a, that was an incredible time of music during those periods of time. Amazing. Yeah. I've heard so many good things about Toto. And during this time, 1985, things were culminating to 1986 when David Gilmore, yeah, And their time apparel, Roger Waters is leaving the band. It's like, hey, Scott, I want you to play on this one track, The Dogs of War. Right. How, how was that the experience? Did you meet him beforehand, David Gilmore? How did he find out about you? Well, what happened was, was I was playing with Supertramp, and Dave was doing, a, uh, was doing the uh, playing on the album. He was guesting on the Supertramp record. That's right. So, we came, so I was in the studio. We were all in the studio. And that night, just down the street uh, in, in um, uh, Woodland Hills, where uh, Rick Davies lived, he had a studio at his house, beautiful pad there. Just down the block, there was a club called Josefina's that I used to play with my band. I had a band called the Hang Dynasty, which was made up of, you know, Jeff Baxter from the Doobie Brothers. And I, I can't remember, Leland Scalar, you know, the bass player, uh, Lee. Uh, and uh, gosh, I can't remember who else was there. But a bunch of us were playing in that 
night. And I said, hey, after the session, why don't you come down? We're just playing down the streets, down the bottom of the hill. Come on, hang out after. So Gilmore came down and hung out and stuff with us. And we had a great time. And then um, the next weekend, I invited him. I said, I'm doing this event uh, called uh, the first dance that I was putting on at Guitar Center. It was a thing. I, I was inventing a whole thing called visual sound where I was using uh, zooming mic, uh, MIDI-based tripods with zooming microphones that I developed to create an experience so that when the mic zoomed in on the, the player, you could actually feel the presence come up in the mix and kind of make it feel like you were there. So I was experimenting, and I did this thing with a 50-piece band at Guitar, Guitar Center, and I invited Dave down. Well, it just happened to be that Jeff was down the road doing, uh, was uh, that day was doing, playing on the Pink Floyd record. And Jeff said, hey Dave, I gotta go to Scott's thing, I'm playing on that. And he said, oh, I'll come with you. So he came with Jeff that night to my show where I had the whole thing and I played, we did our show and everything and I hung out with Dave again a little bit. And then uh, next day or two days later, I get a call from, from Dave, and it's the English guy, and he says, oh, Scott, we're doing this thing. Would you come put a solo on this record? So I went in to do the, the solo on the record. We get there, and it, it's a, this is when we were using tape, right? It was, it was, we were using 24-track tape, right? So the whole thing was filled up, and they said, well, here's what we want you to put the solo on. And I said, okay, fine. And they, uh, they said, but Dave, we don't have any tracks open. We have to delete these saxophone tracks. And they had all my heroes had already put a, put a solo on the record. Tom Scott, I think they said Dave Sanborn. I mean, I can't believe all these people. They said, well, we have to erase these. And I'm like, they're going to erase these guys, my, my heroes. So they erased them. And I said, give me, give me a shot. Let me just throw down top to bottom. Don't say anything. Let me just throw some stuff down. So I threw some things on and uh, they loved the solo. It became out. So then a couple days later, I got a call from Dave saying, we're going out on this big tour. Do you want to come and join the band? And to be truthful, I knew nothing about Pink Floyd. I didn't even, when I went did the session, I didn't really know who they were, really, to be honest, other than I heard them. I remember a song, Have a Cigar or something, because I was an R&B rock and roll guy. I was an R&B blues. I was on, you know, the Stevie Wonder and, you know, Junior Walker and all those kind of guys. Never really paid any attention to that classic English rock. So uh, I told Dave, I said, you know, Dave, let me think about it. I, I, let me think about this, right? So, because I was working on that project that he came to see and I needed now, I shot that thing, it was all video, I was editing it, it was my own project. Uh, so I called some friends of mine, I said, hey, hey buddy, man, I got this call from uh, Dave Gilmore, you know, he's a guitar player in a band called Pink Floyd. The guy goes, what, what are you calling? I said, yeah, they asked me to come join the band. He said, are you kidding me? Dude, you gotta take that gig. Are you crazy? I said, well, what do you mean? So a couple of my friends said, you have to do that gig. So that night I went to um, uh, a Tower Records, which was open 24-7, about 2 o'clock in the morning, went and bought some records, came back and listened to them. And then I said, okay, next thing I did, I called them. I said, let's go because it was, we're going to go out for, oh, go away for two years. So when somebody says, hey, you're going to leave your home for two years, <laughs> you got to really think about it. And listen, it's, I'm so happy I did that. <laughs> that was the greatest thing I'd ever, I'm, I'm so thankful I didn't turn that down at the time. And now I am without a doubt the biggest Pink Floyd fan on the, on the planet. Dave Gilmore is my guru. He is the master of melody. 
he has completely changed the way I think when I play. Because everything Dave does is you can remember the melodies. He's not real flashy, you know, playing all this. He plays things that you can memorize, you can hear and listen to. Just look at the songs, Comfortably Numb. You hear Comfortably Numb without the guitar solo, it feels like the, somebody left the words out, right? There's just certain things. So Dave really taught me the master of melody. So I completely changed my playing and, you know, being able to be on the bus and the planes and all the things that we did and talk music with him. And uh, he's, he's an incredible, incredible musician, really one of a kind. And I'm very, very thankful and blessed to have been uh, touched by him and that band. I mean, it's incredible, incredible brand worldwide, right? It's just, and it never stops. And you can see it, even us doing our Think Floyd shows, 40 sold out shows and kids are coming. Parents are bringing their kids. It's just one of those brands and music, you know, you, you add it up. It's like, you know, the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, Zeppelin, uh, Floyd. And then it starts getting a little thinner as you start going down the line. But it's, you know, they're one of the top 10 bands in history. So to have my little piece, my little mark on that is uh, really, uh, it's very, uh, it's very humbling. And I'm so thankful. I can't tell you. Awesome. You're right. All, all the all the music. I was thinking about about it today. I asked my friend, "Do you think Pink Floyd would have been as successful with Sid Barrett as as the front man of of that of that group?" And we spoke for about five minutes. I I think that everything happens for a reason. First off, the the answer is indefinite because we could never figure that out. And. Uh, but one thing that we do agree with David Gilmore fronting the ship, we talked about feel. There's feel. You immerse yourself into the music. You hear it, and sometimes you get stuck between the notes, and you you, you wander off. And I, I can't even believe that I'm saying this, but if I was a musician in that Think Floyd experience with all the visuals, I'd probably get so lost in the visuals and the and the music. And uh, it must be quite the experience for you to be up there and and ex, and and taking it all in isn't it oh i mean yeah and especially you know we do we get to put our own little spin on it because we don't try to make it exactly like the records i mean we do it close because we want to be that do that but yeah i mean what it really is to me it's really about the players the chemistry of the people and when you marry the guys that we put together playing this timeless classic music that all of us love to death i mean it's just incredible it is a really a thrill and i've played those tunes now so much uh but i still love to play them i mean they're still fun they're so musical about what they do and you know it's so fascinating uh the real kind of the reason funny story is uh uh uh, how I got started with the whole Think Floyd thing and doing this was uh, Norwood Fisher called me. Uh, he was doing a residency here in town. And this is how I met Stephen uh, at a place called The Mint. And each each month they were doing uh, a classic album, top to bottom. So we did a, we did a, 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 um, a, a B.B. King album and a few other albums. And he called me and said, we're doing Wish You Were Here would you come play with us and do that record? I said, yeah. And when I got there, it was Perkins was playing drums. That was the first time I met Perkins uh, other than knew of him. And so that's where we played that night. But what was so fascinating was is everybody thinks Pink Floyd is easy because it's, you know, E minor chords. There's not any like 13 plus 11 chords or any kind of flashy, you know, jazz, two, five, one, three, six, two, five chords at all. It's all very simple, but it's complex because the form is so unique. 
There's no, it's not built in necessarily like, you know, most music's like A, A, B, A section, you know, eight bars, eight bars, you know, four bar bridge, whatever. It breaks all those things. And all those guys said, oh my God, trying to learn all this music was complex because of, you know, how long those phrases sometimes go before the chord changes happen. How do I remember them unless I know them a lot? So uh, that's how I met Perkins. That's how I got into, you know, with them. And that night, I realized that uh, I was talking with a guy, David Moss, um, who I do this talk show thing with also. He And he started telling me about jazz as dead, which is guys taking the dead music and playing it with jazz and they're killing it because they're, they're rearranging the, again, the, the uh, classic, something that people knew and doing it in a unique way. And I'd already been thinking about doing something with Floyd and the stuff in some interesting ways. So after that night is when I started to, I brought the idea of this Floyd show into the think experience thing. And that was sort of the start of that whole thing. Incredible ideas your mind is probably always racing with the next thing, you know, immersing yourself. It seems like you, with the coffee that you drink, it just, it just keeps things racing in your head. Just like me, I always uh, look for another coffee, another coffee, cola, whatever I have to do. I just love coffee. We have a question. What's actually interesting is it's actually the opposite. My mind stops. I actually, I've taken a path. I really, I've taken a heavy spiritual path years ago and the realize that the all problems are based on thoughts that you identify in your head because people don't realize the only thing that's real is you and me talking right now. That's true. Two minutes ago is an illusion. Two minutes from now is an illusion. And that's the way it is. There's only one moment in time. There's only one. It's always the same moment. And time is an illusion. So once you start to grasp those things, and I realize when I play my best and when I do my best creative work is when I stop thinking that's where all it comes up. So people say your mind's racing. It used to race like crazy. You'd be like a hamster on a wheel and you're thinking. Now I go to the other place. I go to stillness. I go to slow, still, complete. I can actually stop thinking now. It took me 20 years to know what that is to stop thought. And now that's where I do all my best work is I go the opposite. I get rid of all the thinking and that's where the best ideas They just come from the universe. I can't explain it. It's just, it's where it is. It's like playing. That's why I play. People say, you know, what is it about playing? I play because it gets me closer to God or the source or consciousness or whatever you want to call it. Unfortunately, when you use the word God, it creates an image and you miss it. It has nothing to do with that. Uh, but it's really the opposite. It's learning to be still and be quiet. And that's where the real, the real knowledge comes from. So, so kind of, more gravitating those ideas towards you by just not uh, just being calm and, and not, not, it's not, not thinking, just letting it happen. Is that what you're saying? Well, that's it. Yes, it is. It's letting it happen, but it is actually, again, it took me a long time to, because all the teachings through all the great, you know, the, the great avatars from Jesus, Zona Rosa, Buddha, uh, you know, you go on and on and on all the great teachers, spiritual teachers through the years, they always talk about this, thing of knowing it's not understanding because once you start to understand you missed it the minute you think about it you miss it and so what is that so the puzzle is is how do i know it's about it's about awareness they always say it's about being really aware when you're present you're aware but the question is how do i know i'm aware that i'm aware that's the puzzle how do i know when i'm aware because your mind will say 
I'm aware now. Well, no, you can't be aware because the only way you can be aware is when you stop thinking. And that happens in disasters. Something goes wrong and you're forced into something. You're not thinking about your email. You're not thinking about this. It gives you a glimpse of what the present moment is like and how things take over. And you just basically start to deal with stuff. So the goal in life for me, there's only one, listen, there's only one thing everybody on this planet is here for, and there's nothing else. One job we all have, and that is to help consciousness unfold, the universe unfold. Because think about it. You blink, you're 50, you blink, you're on your deathbed. Huh? How did all those time goes by? I look back right now, and I'm going, huh? 50-some years went by? I mean, how did that happen? Like, it's like, it seems like it was yesterday when I was doing those things. Now I go, ah, now I, I know what time is, is an illusion. It's something that we create in our head. We create time. We don't, there is no such time is just a thing we make up. And so once you start to grasp these things and you realize that the stillness, and that's where the real creative juices come from. It's like not when you're over trying to think everything, you're like, oh my God, you're running around. And all the intellectual people say, you got to think about this. You got to really put on it. It's really when you stop all that is when it really happens. And for me, what really I realized on the music side was this. I was used to, when I'd play my gigs for years, I'd come home from my gigs in my car and I'd take my cassettes because I'd, I'd tape every gig and I'd put it in the car on my drive home to listen to how I played so I could see if my time was good, if I flat, sharp, the lines I played, you know, just here I played, critique myself, right? Do it all the time. And uh, one, about five times over a 10-year period of, of, of my study career playing years, I, I heard myself back and I go, that ain't me. Where did that even come from? I have no idea how I played like this. I played stuff that was just miraculously, and I could never figure out what happened. I'd be chasing that forever. Then when I started getting into more, taking an inward journey and really focusing on meditation and things, I finally realized what happened. At those moments, thought dropped. It went away, and I just played from a different place and it's hard to explain. So from that point through my meditations, I started realizing. So now when I go to play, because it's taken me again, almost 15, 18 years to finally get to the point where I can stop thought. I mean, I can like that and everybody can. And it's so simple. We always miss, we all miss it. That's why we all dance around it. It's just too hard to grasp. But once you taste it, you go, that's it. And once you do that, your life changes because you can, when you're aware, you realize that you're not caught up in your thoughts. So here's one for everybody to try, all right? Just a little thing, an exercise to start, it's called waking up, right? This is the, what they talk about, you know, the, the great thing of what's called enlightenment is like the idea of knowing who you are, what do you stand, what is it, who am I, where did I come from, right? That's the, that's the golden carrot that's out there that everybody chases, right? And so... Um, you start to realize that, that, that once you stop that thought, you're really connecting with reality because you're not labeling anything. And once that happens, you feel this massive shift and you realize, wait a minute, am I the watcher or am I the thinker? The thinking part is what gets in the way. We put too much emphasis on the thoughts and stuff. So the exercise, stop Ask yourself where I am, put all your attention in the room, and then ask this question. What am I feeling right now? Am I feeling any anxiety, tension, or fear? If I'm feeling any of those, that's a pointer that's saying you're identified with a thought. Because I'm standing here, I'm sitting here right now in reality, 
everything's fine. I'm not suffering about, oh my God, what's going to happen? If this is going to happen, what do I do now? My car got hit last week. It sucks. I can't believe it. It's all this stuff. And so you're identifying with a thought. Goal of life is one thing. Resist nothing. Surrender to what is because anything else is futile. That's why when I lost all our gigs, it didn't even phase me. I mean, all our revenue, everything went away. I swear, I swear to God, I didn't even think about it. I just got up that morning and said, because this is what I'm doing right now, got to shift my goal because those were illusions. I have no idea what would have happened to me if I went on those trips. I will know if those things, oh, anything, because it was all future mental noise that was just an illusion. So when we stop worrying about the future and we stop worrying about the past, the only thing that matters is the ride. We're having a good ride. Am I having a good ride right now? So every step I take, I've got to a point where I almost feel like I'm in a, in a reality bubble because I know the only thing that's real is what I'm looking at and where I am right at that moment. And as soon as I start to think about stuff, I'm watching my thoughts all the time. I'm seeing myself, oh, I'm going down. Don't do that. That's stupid, right? You start becoming the watcher. So the goal is to switch your, your point of view from being the thinker to the watcher. And then you ask yourself, who's watching? Is there two of me? That's when it gets interesting. Life starts to become more real. And then you start to have the realization. I'm really not this thinker at all. I'm looking at myself at everything I see. That's what I am. I'm part, this is who I am. This is a meat suit that's being driven by this thing that's going through me, right? So that's why I don't believe you die. The meat suit may go away, but you know, so what? I'm actually, you know, as strange as this may sound, I've, I've gotten to a point where I'm actually fascinated now with what it's going to be like on the other side. And I have zero fear of it anymore. I, you know, if I go, fine, because I don't think you die. You just kind of, the meat suit goes away. And this thing that you're looking through your eyes is always the same and it never stops. So, so you think it just continues, just no physical being? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's obvious because when I stop thought, I become, I merge with the source and I go, oh, that's, that's what I am. That's real, right? The other thing is thoughts. It's mental noise that you're identifying with is what causes all the freaking problem. All the suffering comes. And people don't realize suffering is there for a reason. It's a gift. Because suffering gets to a point where you go, I can't take it anymore. And then you start looking inward and you start thinking, man, maybe I need to get some help books. And I start forcing myself to getting a little bit more and learning about how to, how to control all this. And all the suffering is all about thoughts. Unless you're getting chased by a tiger or a lion or something's happening and you're just sitting there. Because I see people suffer and they'll be sitting there. I can, you can just see their wheels are turning and they're just suffering. And they're sitting there with a cup of coffee in a perfectly safe place. That's all that's real. Grasping that and knowing that as true. It's not, it's easy to understand, but just know this pointer. The minute you understand it, you've missed it. That's the trick right there. I understand. No, well, then you missed it. As soon as you say you understand it, you missed it. You can't understand it. You can only know it. And it's a knowing is different because there's nobody that could change my, there's not a person on the planet that could tell me that what's real, what it is right now and try to change my point of view. There's just nobody because now I know it's, it's like the, the mind is this, the egoic mind, the insanity, of the mind. I mean, that's the problem we're having on the planet right now. It's nothing else other than the insanity of the egoic mind. These people running around because remember this, here's a fact. The mind is incapable of knowing truth from falsehood. It's impossible. And I can prove it. If it was true, if my mind was capable of knowing what is true, what is false, what is right, what is wrong, there'd be no war. There'd be no war. 
because they get convinced. My mind knows this is what it is, right? So that thing is insane. And once first thing is you got to see how insane you are. Because once I started being able to watch myself, I'm going, I'm a nut. I'm a completely insane. I, am, I, I cannot believe how insane I am. That's what the first observations. And when you see that, you, you look at everybody else. That's why in the Bible, it's funny because I've read all the books, all the different ones, right? Because I'm so fascinated with the subject. They, in the Bible, it says, forgive for they know not what they do. And that is a profound statement because that's saying you can't, anybody, no matter how horrific, how horrible it is, you have to think they don't even know what they're doing. They have no idea. They're driven by the, either like this guy that just killed this guy, the satanic freaking insanity that's out there in his head. He, he can't do any better. We don't get up every day saying, gee, I'm going to do the worst I can today. You get up and do the best you can. I don't care what it is. So we have to live in a state of total forgiveness all the time. It's, we have to forgive because for they not know what they do. We all do. We're, we're insane. And until people start to take this inward journey, which is why I think what's going on right now, there's a lot of contemplating going on with all the wackiness that's happening. I think there's awakening that's starting to happen to people because they're sitting in their homes for three months by themselves and they're having time to like really contemplate. Some people is making them mad and other people are like, wow, I'm going to start reading those books and start getting into it. So I think there's a major awakening that's also happening with also at the same time, I think there's an insane satanic thing going on right now that is just crazy. And I don't mean satanic in the thing. I'm talking about the metaphorically, just the demonic kinds of things that drive people. And, the, and again, it's where we are as humanity. People think, you know, we've got to save the world. I'm going, we, the world's fine. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing to say. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to. Humanity, that's a different subject, whether we're going to be here. And then I ask the question, is this, do we even need to be here? Is it, why is that important? This thing is beautiful. I'm looking at the trees. It's growing. Everything's happening. It's flourishing. The universe is continuing. And, you know, do we, does it matter? And I also believe that uh, uh, humans are designing themselves out right now. And the machine is taking over because this phone, it's not implanted in me yet but I'm carrying it everywhere and it's everything I'm doing, right? And those algorithms are feeding you information which you're programming your mind, right? That's the wild part. So the machines are now starting to get the point to take over. And AI, you know, all the artificial intelligence, they're saying, oh, it'll never be as smart as a human. Okay, uh, it'll be like, it's already smarter than humans because you've got the entire database of the entire world right now at your fingertips to be smarter than any human, but it won't have emotion. Well, wait a minute. Quantum mechanics now has just changed quantum computing because computing because it used to be binary on or off, right? Yes or no. Now we have yes, no, and maybe with quantum. And when you look at quantum entanglement, and if you really look into quantum physics and stuff, that's all now pointing to what the mystics have been saying for years. It's starting to prove. I read, just read a whole article that they now have got theories of proving that the, the present moment and the, and the future happen exactly at the same space, right? And that's being proven in science, which is fascinating. So science is now, which has always been the thing that's against all this hocus pocus of spiritualism and all this stuff was just really like for people that are goofy, right? They're like little flower people. Well, it's getting past that point. We're now learning all that stuff in, you know, the quantum world. Fascinating stuff. I love it. I, I, my head hurts a lot when I talk about it. I heard, I heard uh, Sean Carroll talk about it over on a Joe Rogan show, the different dimensions and a parallel universe. Uh, 
it's very hard to comprehend because I have an uncle who I, I'm greatly inspired by. He told me all this stuff probably like four or five years ago. Uh, there's a, there's a, a, I don't know what you would call it, but like a little group of people who get together here. Uh, they study quantum mechanics, quantum physics, they deal with teleportation and whatever. And he told me a lot of this stuff and it's incredible because that means if there's maybe 50 or a thousand different versions of me, it's, it's, there's something, something that we don't fully understand about our life here in this dimension or whatever this is, you know, we're, we're perfect. We're perfect here. Our bodies work perfectly. We're in a great environment. Everything's made for us. Uh, it seems like our body is able to process almost anything. Uh, it just, it, it's so puzzling. And one day I hope we'll be able to maybe travel to different dimensions and, and, and see your parallel self. Or the one thing that they really got me is that the deja vu is because the person in the parallel dimension that, that it's going in reverse has experienced that already. So you already have experienced that just not in this world, which is, it just blew me away. And you know what? My head really hurts when I talk about this stuff because it doesn't make sense. You, you have to be able to comprehend it in, in little in little pieces, right? Yeah. Well, you know what's happening again? Science, because of the technology we have, we can now start measuring at the at the quantum level. We're just vibration. We're just a note. It's like this glass table here is not solid, which yeah. is fascinating, right? There's so many things, and now we've got quantum entanglement where they got like a proton here in in Los Angeles moves, and it moves one in Florida. Like they're talking to each other. So now they're talking about teletransport, transporting now. All these things are starting to become, which were science fiction, are kind of go, wow, now we're, we're seeing there's some possible things that can happen because at the end of the day, we're just a vibration of a, 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 a note. That's why music is so important, why it's so universal, is because we are a note at the, bottom, at the, at the deepest level. So it's just fascinating for me because I study it because I'm so interested in how the spiritual world and these worlds are coming together to prove things that are that are happening right now. And so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting time. No question to be alive. Oh, absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's a conversation we could have for many, many years and we will still not know anything. Uh, and you know, we, we, we have to close this because I feel that if we keep going, my wife's going to be calling me for dinner and and (laughs) it's going to be a big mess and people are going to be calling me for some more, uh, voiceovers. So in closing, the question I ask every guest on this show, Scott, Okay. How do you take your coffee? Oh, I, I'm, so I'm, see, I'm a big Nespresso fan. I have a Nespresso machine. Yeah. You have those great coffee in those things. Cause you can get all those different flavors and all that stuff. And so I'll make, I, I'm a, I'm a non-fat latte guy, but now I've been a, a, a non, I, I've been using oat milk, believe it or not, because I just don't want the dairy anymore. Cause I got some inflation, inflation and stuff. So I'm mostly uh, no sugar. No sugar. I'll have it either black or with a latte with oat milk. That's my whole thing. Well, thanks, Scott, for coming on to meet me for coffee. You can check out Scott on his Twitter, or you can check out what's that website for uh, the Think Experience? It's, uh, yeah, so all my handles is I A M Scott Page, and you can find me on Twitter, Twitter Face, uh, Instagram, all that. I am Scott Page, and um, uh, uh, Think Experience. So Think Exp Co thinkexp.co is our website, but best is just think, think experience, think exp, Google search, 
You'll find articles, you see videos of our dome shows. That's the easiest way. Just use Google, Google Think EXP, and you'll find access to everything we do. Well, thanks, Scott. Have a good night. Buddy, that was a fun time. Thank you for having me on your show. Very much appreciated.